A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hello Ruckers, welcome along to The Ruck, the rugby podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times on location in France. Round one of the Rugby World Cup 2023 is in the books. I'm Alfie Reynolds, I've got Owen Slot, Will Kelleher, Steve Jones alongside me. How are we boys? I'm so much better knowing that you've had a shower. <laughs> so Ruck listeners, yeah, let's explain this. Alfie is going round. I thought like, you were talking about him. Jones who's had a shower. <laughs> no, I, I'm pleased that Jones had a shower. Yeah, true. Well, I'm glad we all have, really, after last night. But, um, yeah, so Alfie's going round France in a caravan. Can you explain the caravan setup? Yeah, so myself and Tim Cocker, who are both doing a few bits for TalkSport whilst we're out here, he has got a, a Ford, it's called a Nugget, is the, the official name of the... Okay. Ford of, Nugget. Of, yeah, of the, of the van, uh, which works as a bit of a camper van as well. We've got some branding <laughs> on the side, uh, but we're staying in that. But no shower this morning for me, so I was messaging Will, saying, yeah. Will, please, can I... So I got a text this morning being like, oh, we're doing the pod at 11, but can I come a bit earlier? Because my caravan doesn't have any water. Can I have a shower in your room? So I've, I've lent him a shower slot. Do you, do you find that with all that branding on the side, you get kind of get mobbed by, by Ruck fans and just general Alfie fans going... Oh, he's he, presenter he's Alfie. Here. He's in the van. Yeah. Shockingly, not yet, oh, I would I say. Maybe by we'll the end of famous. the tour. We'll kind of see who's the, 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 the rock star of the, of the World Cup, but, you know, by the end, clearly. Yeah, well, exa- <laughs> exactly. Let's give it a bit of time. We've only had one week so far. Steve, how are you? Yeah, we had one, is that all, we've only been out here for one week. One week, <laughs> yeah, well. Three months. We were just saying before we started recording that we all feel knackered already and have been to about one game or a couple of games in a few of your guys' cases. But look, boys, loads to get into yep. on this episode of the podcast the the first round of the world cup i think has been brilliant we'll go through all the different games all the talking points england's great win against argentina as well so that's all coming up on this week's episode of the ruck can i just explain the background noise there's a helicopter over that just went overhead with a, one of those banners out the back going is that alfie down there <laughs> did you pay for that oh, no i mean it's just pe- people are people are trying to find you i was gonna say you wouldn't <laughs> get that past the desk at the times so i don't think loads to come up uh, on this week's episode let's get into it so as Will has already teed up, we are at the Guys Hotel in Marseille. We're sat out by the pool. It's quite a nice way to start our first on-location ruck out in France, I think. Yeah, it's it is. It's lovely. It's, it's, it's quite beautiful. Actually, we're slightly detached from the madness of Marseille as well. I don't mean in a, in a nasty way, but it is a crazy, crazy city. But it's, uh, you, won't, you won't fall asleep in Marseille in the middle of the day, I can tell you that. How many hours sleep have we had? So we're recording this Sunday morning for those that are downloading on Monday I think I had four hours sleep last night 9pm kickoffs are a nightmare well, how did you get on Slotty? no I've been all the way through the night 
Yeah, down, like down at the old port, then back up for <laughs> rucking this morning. That explains the sunglasses, doesn't it? <laughs> I was wondering why that was. It, 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 for me, I think, I think I'm on about nine hours over the last two nights because I got a ridiculously early train from Paris to Marseille on, yeah, on okay. Saturday. But look, it, it, it's all worth it. No one is going to be there with their violins out feeling sorry for 51 us. 51 days to go, lads. <laughs> Just on, on the subject of the train from um, Paris to Marseille, there was some interesting news on that. On my train, th- there was Bill Sweeney. Oh right, and, he, uh, and the um, and the and um, Tommy Lube, the yeah. the chairman of the RFU. But anyway, it, it was just good because no one's seen them for, eight, for for ages. Bill Sweeney's gone missing, and we no one knew if he was you know where he was. Was he was he on Planet World Cup? But but here he is. He is here. Tom, Tom Tommy Lube came storming into his job at the RFU, claiming he was going to do this, that, the other. Never ever heard from him again. I mean, you, I think it was you pointed out that's, that's him over there. I mean, he's chairman of the RFU. Would you never introduce yourself to a media man? I don't know. There was a funny moment. Um, so the last time we recorded this pod, we were in London, weren't we? Um, Chinatown, which feels about four years ago. <laughs> but since then, I've spent the, the first half of the week up in Latuque, right in the north near, near-ish Calais, where England are based. And on Saturday last week, there was the sort of welcome ceremony thing. Jonathan Webb, who's... Um, the RFU's world rugby representative who played at fullback a while back did a presentation and they did something that was sort of like and welcome Bill Sweeney and there was a round of applause for him and he wasn't there (laughs) there was an empty seat that just said reserved for Bill Sweeney and was that intended to be a joke? no I don't think so I think they thought he was there and then he just sort of wasn't but he was at the game so there you go and he saw a good one. It's well, only fair that feudal landlords of their sort should be absentee landlords as well. I think it just goes back to the dark ages. <laughs> uh, Stephen Slotter, you were at the opening night, France against New Zealand in Paris. I'll get onto that in just a sec, actually. But first of all, just kind of generally speaking for all three of you, your early impressions of the 2023 World Cup. It's had a big, big build-up. Now you're here, you've been on the ground, you've been to games, you've experienced the atmosphere. What's kind of your, your takeaway from the opening weekend? I just feel that it's a an event of unlimited joy. I mean, it's, I've just been so happy to be around. I've been at two games, and the atmosphere around them both has just been fantastic. Just so vibrant, so full of energy, so full of noise, so full of really wonderfully happily drunk people just taking it in the right style. I hadn't had a chance to get into... Paris. So I don't really know if it, if you can say, oh, the Rugby World Cup has taken the capital by storm. It's certainly taken Marseille by storm. And I don't know if, if it can keep on going like this. It, it can't because it, it fluctuates. Rugby World Cups, doesn't it? Weekends, and then you then you have the down period in the midweeks, and, and then it explodes every weekend. But the first explosion has been epic. One of the things is we've been looking forward to that first game, Alfie, for absolutely two years or whatever it is, and. Um, it's very rare where things turn out exactly as you hope they might, and th- and that that did. It was an amazing occasion. It was an amazing game. We got so much info about both sides from it. Behavioural wise, it was absolutely fine, and uh, it's been great. There are two things that, that behind the scenes people at home wouldn't know, and that is a there is a high, high level of security here. Also. Let's say the traffic is not exactly light, whatever you go. I mean, I've never seen so many cars in all my life. But it's fine, I'm loving it. And uh, it is joyous is the word, Slotty. Joyous is the word. I've only ever been to one other World Cup as a journalist, and I feel like it's similar already. There's the sort of, like, glorious chaos of the whole thing. Like, it's just mad. Like, Mm. Japan was mad for different reasons, because people didn't speak the language, and the Japanese were... Or, or Japan as a country was somewhere that not a lot of us had been to, so it was all 
fresh and new and different and not very sort of traditionally rugby maybe because we often go to the same places around the world but I've been in Marseille and up in Latouke was already calm because you're out in the sticks and there's nothing really going on but then you land we landed from Lille to Marseille and an Edinburgh flight had just come as well and it was like Russian dolls because it was the sort of same Scottish bloke all coming off the plane and it was Scotland shirt kilt, Scotland shirt kilt, Scotland shirt kilt. And you just sort of like, oh, right, we're here. We're at the World Cup. And it's mad. You've got, I mean, there was trouble with fans getting into the stadium last night, which was not good. Mm. Um, you could see we were up in the gods at the top of the stadium and you could see down below there was about 5,000 people just waiting at the gates for ages. And that was a big problem. But luckily, it didn't seem that it was there was too much actual trouble with it or no one was hurt but yeah it's just it's just sort of mad yeah it was an issue as you say will before the england argentina game i've seen a few other people on social media pointing out as well that games they were at in other parts of the country they had similar issues of trying to get into stadium or some of the organizations so that's maybe something to keep an eye on just on your point slotty as well of what it was like in paris compared to marseille that was one of the most interesting things for me because i flew into to paris unfortunately wasn't able to go to the opening game but you were aware a world cup was on there was plenty of billboards oh, and, yeah. and things on the yeah. metro but you're right it's a whole different level when you came to Marseille and England fans Argentinian fans Springbok fans Scotland fans the port before the England game just absolutely packed out every bar that was kind of where I when I stepped off the train and got myself into Marseille just that smaller city you felt you were at a World Cup You'd also think, I think, that it was horrible to see people outside. I hate that. I'd hate it if I was out there with my two lads when they were young and all that. But but you have to hope and expect that it'll get better as it goes on. That while, while they sort it, hopefully it'll get better and better. It kind of needs to, though, doesn't it? Because whoever's in them, there are big quarterfinals here in Marseille when we get there in a month's time. Yeah. So that's going to be an issue. So we've just got some lapping waves in the pool here because one of our colleagues of another newspaper just try to dunk in the pool so yeah, apologies if you now need the toilet everyone it's a lesser spotted walrus from the mail on sunday but he's going up and down the pool i would jump in but i feel i've already taken liberties of, of using the shower like, <laughs> yeah. that's enough on the atmosphere and all that sort of thing opening night steve you mentioned how it had been billed for the best part of two years france the hosts mm. against new zealand you were both there first of all actually what was it like in stadium because i did see quite a few people that were obviously watching the game at home suggesting that maybe the atmosphere wasn't really coming across so what was it like actually in the stade de france well if the atmosphere was coming coming across it wasn't the fault of the atmosphere it was the fault of whoever was doing the pictures it was, it was just magnificent i mean there must have been about a thousand choruses and it was just outstanding i mean I think the, the New Zealand contingent was slightly dwarfed, but for the French public are really behind this, and it sounded like it. It was absolutely rocket rocket noise. Honestly, it really was. It was it was magnificent. I mean, someone, uh, you know, someone just made a little tiny break, or one New Zealand didn't knock the ball on. It was it was greeted like the conquering hero. So it was just it was just wonderful. James is right. It was very very loud, very very riotous, and there were two moments of absolute silence which I loved and one was during the hacker so, so the All Blacks started the hacker and then because it's a, a, a ridiculous long hacker um, the French started cheering halfway through it because they thought it was over and then suddenly they realised oh they're still going and, and, and they like self-police and suddenly everyone was immensely quiet and, and respectful it's like we want to listen to this and, it, and, and that was lovely and the other moment where they were absolutely you couldn't hear anything was when Dupont was interviewed afterwards on you know the post-match interview, and it was like the Messiah speaking. You know, <laughs> we, we we must listen in, everyone. 
the game itself, I mean, New Zealand out to a blistering start. And I, I thought there were moments where you looked at the All Blacks and thought, blimey, if you can string this together more consistently, I, I'm not sure there's many teams that can beat you. But ultimately, it was France that got the win that, that ground them down. What were kind of your takeaways from, from the French victory? As New Zealand has shown a lot lately, Alfie, that they had to do that. They just had to. They had to play quick, take quick tap penalties. They had to react to bouncing balls because I think they knew deep in their hearts they haven't got the actual muzzle power to, to, to do anything else. And that's what they did. I never thought that they were getting a grip on the game. They, you know, There was a, a bust-up midfield, which is, can always happen in the first phase of play. I always felt that New Zealand were... Well, in the end, New Zealand were played to a standstill. At the, end, at the last 20 minutes, they kept on giving the ball to Bowden Barrett, who clearly didn't want it and didn't know what to do with it. Huge performance by France. And I keep telling people that for, you know, there, were four, there are four world-class players to come back into that French team. They were a little bit, little bit nervous. And like I say, they started badly. But I didn't think... I don't know about you, Will, but... I never thought that New Zealand were remotely near getting a grip on that game. So I was watching the game in Marseille in a bar, and it was quite fun because it was in the area they call Euromed, which is sort of down from the Vieuxport, if you've got fans who have been in the city this weekend. And they basically just put TVs out on the street, which is quite fun. So we had a nice spot and watching it. And from watching the telly with French coverage, firstly the French coverage was like stereotypically bonkers, where... You've got people in fan zones all over the country going mad. And it was just like, this is chaos. And they had stuff in the change rooms. They had them filming them getting unchanged after the game and stuff like that. It was, it was like proper access all areas. But then you actually had the match itself. And just watching it from the TV, it looked like France were quite nervous to start with. Like that try that Talea scored right at the start. You just sort of think, oh, no, are they going to bottle it on the big stage? But then I think the overwhelming feeling maybe down in Marseille was sort of like almost the pressure's off now. Ooh, they've got through the first game. They've won. They've beaten the All Blacks up and running. And it's just great for the host nation to win the first game, I think. One thing about Anton Dupont, I think you've got a weakness because I think Aaron Smith clearly... Yeah, shackled put, him really put, well, put, didn't pull he? him off and was clearly the better of the two nines. And when it came down to it, um, you, we found that old Antoine does take a little bit of time to shovel the ball out. So I think that'll, that'll be, you know, not to say he's not a great player, but he certainly wasn't the best of the two scrum halves out there because Aaron Smith played really well. To flip that around, could you also look at it and say that France's best player got relatively shut down and they still found a way to win that game? And won quite convincingly, really, yeah, in the yeah. end, didn't they? Which is a great sign. And like we've talked about this on our preview pods, haven't we, that kind of that group's not got that much jeopardy in it I mean Italy smashed Namibia didn't they and they're going to have a hell of a go at it and they score some nice tries but it's going to take an awful lot for them to beat New Zealand for the first time ever or or France in that final game so I just think it was a bit like Japan 2019 wasn't it Slotty like them doing well and winning and going through just lifts the whole tournament yeah that's what it needed they needed to to to, to cast a that magic spell over over their country and 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 bring everyone along and, and they've done that Immediately, and, and and as for the French performance, I, mean, I agree. I agree with Steve. Dupont was somewhat shackled. I don't think it was an amazing French performance. And they, they beat the All Blacks with a bit to spare at the end. And I think one thing you know is they've got more to give. So you know that was theirs was like a six, seven out of ten game, and they st- and they still won it. Yeah. Just finally on this game, then let's final word on the All Blacks. I think we can all agree perfect start for France as the hosts and as a team that have aspirations of, of winning the World Cup. In terms of the All Blacks then, am I quite wide of the mark then in terms of that I've looked at the game and I've I've seen moments of quality I just don't think they're consistent whatsoever or 
am I being a little bit too kind to, to where the All Blacks are at the moment? I d- yeah, it's hard with the All Blacks. Again, we talked about this last time on the pod, didn't we, that because their previous era was just so ridiculously good, it's, when you're comparing it, you're comparing it to the best team that's ever played the game, pretty much, certainly in the professional era. But I suppose they're going to come second in their pool now, so let's see what happens between Ireland and South Africa. But they know they can beat both of those teams. They have they got smashed by South Africa recently, and they've lost quite a lot recently to Ireland, haven't they? I think it's five of the last eight. But they do have a game that can beat both of them. So all they need to do now is groove a game to, to win a quarterfinal and then see where they are. I, I think that uh, there, there are possibilities, not from that lot who played, but they must get to Lomax back. Uh, the school's a real-world class scrummager. They missed him. Also, Jordy Barrett, I'm not quite sure what his fitness state is. He can make a difference. They've got to get rid of Moanga, who would, might as well not have been there, and move Bowden Barrett back to 10 with Jordy Barrett in the centre. Then you, you've got something. So I think we'll, we, we didn't hear much about them on Friday, but I, I, I think that we will start hearing about them a bit. Got, whether, whether or not they're great, I don't know. Sorry, they got Ritalik to come back in again. I know he's not what he once was. They got Sam Kane obviously dropped out their captain right before the start of the game. They've got more to give as well. Yeah, they have. Okay, well, that was opening night. That kicked off the World Cup. Next up, we'll get into some of the rest of the action over the weekend. So, on to England. Saturday night in Marseille, the city packed expectation a bit of trepidation as well after the form that England came into the World Cup in Tom Curry red card after just minutes and they were still able to get the job done drop kicking George Ford 27 points from the boot of the fly half I mean it was not necessarily the most entertaining game was it in Marseille but certainly at least from an English perspective it was really interesting performance and result we all saw that coming didn't we (laughs) We, it was Everyone knew that was going to be the way. Like, hide your, hide your light under a bushel in the summer and then just go and produce that. The England performance was extraordinary, wasn't it? We, we were sitting next to each other, Slotty, in the stands. And you see the Tom... Well, I actually missed the Tom Curry red card because I was because of all the chaos with the fans, I decided to go down to see if they would miss the kickoff. And by the time I got down there, I'd missed the kickoff and everyone else hadn't. They'd all got in. So <laughs> by the time I came back up in the lift, I sat down, down next to you and there was a TMO thing going on. And I was like, oh, what's happened? And you're like, uh, I think they're looking at whether Tom Curry's going to get sent off. And you think, oh, God. Let's deal with that straight away because it has been a talking point. I think by the letter of the law and the way the game's officiated, it's a red card and you can understand how they get to that decision. But I think amongst a lot of the fans, they struggle to understand how it's given and whether it should be given. So I I have tried to watch it back this morning, Sunday morning for us. And I think it's quite different from the Billy Vinopola and the Owen Farrell where they had more time to assess the tackle, I suppose. So... Curry is in a very upright position. He's basically standing fully upright and hits a guy in the head, Juan Cruz Malia, and cuts. he cuts himself and cuts Malia at the same time. But there's a really um, close-in shot where you can see Curry waiting for him to come down and basically the guy lands directly in front of him and as soon as he hits the floor, they make contact. So it's, very, it's a very quick thing, which I reckon Richard Smith, our famous KC, will argue that toss... I saw a lot of Southern Hemisphere pundits and commentators saying that's why you need a 20-minute red card. That was a shocker. Lots of other people saying he can't stand up right and hit someone in the face. He had enough room to get lower on the tackle. That, that's why, they, that's why they, re- they red-carded him. 
it's one of those things that five years ago wouldn't even have been a penalty. No one would even have noticed that may may have needed treatment. Fine. I feel sorry for Tom Curry, but I, I do think he had the room to get lower. On, on, on the body, so what a shocking moment, but um, it's one of those things and we've got to grin and bear it in this, in this tournament lads, I think. I felt sorry for him, but I think he just got his judgement wrong and that, that's what it's about, it's not intent or whether you're a nice guy or not, it's got absolutely nothing to do with it. He timed his approach to tackle the the, uh, the catcher wrong and, and, and he was completely upright, so I mean, yeah, it was, it was a, a real shame, but I mean, actually what it did to the game was probably brilliant, but I didn't have a problem with it being a red. And we'll get on to the positives for England in just a moment, but I just want to finish this off. Is is the wider conversation on this more the point that it's now, what, four red cards for England since March? So, yeah, and it's eight cards of all types in six matches, one of which has been rescinded, the Freddie Stewart against Ireland Six Nations, but that no one else is getting that level of cards. So I think the, in- so the, mm. the interesting point for me here is, do we think that England are just stupid, indisciplined, not learning from their mistakes? Or is it a, have they just had an, a, an unlucky series of, of, of misjudgments? Because even though logically that doesn't stand up, I kind of feel it's more the latter. that they. That I, don't, I don't think that they're, they're a harebrained bunch of nutters. Yeah, and quite a lot of the yellows. So we asked Steve Borthwick about this the other week when it was fewer cards than it is now. And he was trying to go through some of them in uh, the Wales game when... Farrell got sent off and there were three other yellow cards and he was trying to say well one was a team penalty for a scrum thing for Ellis Genge one was Freddie Stewart taking Josh Adams out in the air that was just for someone being out of position like, there's explanations for all of them but and actually England last night didn't give away that many penalties in total I think it was only seven across the whole game which is way less than they've been doing at the moment uh, in recent times but I just don't see other international teams getting this level of cards like how many times can you get it wrong I suppose is the, is the retort I suppose Well Jonesy what do you think I mean if this is the way England are then we can expect another red before the end of the tournament or more mm. yellows or ideally they should have learned so Yeah of course they should but I tell you what though lads in rugby, when everyone's huge collisions, everyone's coming in left, right and centre, there can never be, even if you're the perfect team in not giving away these things, it will always get you in the end because of, because of the severity of it all. And I think you can... I mean, both, Steve Bothwick told me that they, every day they work on avoidance of yellow and, and, and red cards. Okay, they may not make it very successfully, but you cannot train or play in such a way to make yourself immune to these things you were always going to get carded because that's the way the laws are and things that were never even an offense have now become the end of the world cup possibly for some people it's 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 a t- it's tough all i hope is that no big games are decided in that way is it something to do with england trying to establish themselves which i think they did in the argentina game to a large extent as a physically dominant team if, you know, if you're going to be a physically dominant team then the, the, those words say i'm going to hit you really hard and i'm and my tackle's going to be right on the timing is going to be right when you don't want it so Good point. You're, you're playing on an you're playing on an edge so you can't you can't have one and not the other maybe farrell not recently but a while back, after his red cards in the just before the Six Nations, Farrell spoke about that and essentially made the point in not as many words that players basically accept the risk that they need to be a dominant tackler, and if you're not seen as a dominant tackler, you'll you lose your spot in the team. So you have to kind of take the rough of the smooth, and if you get it slightly wrong by a couple of inches, you're going to get sent off. And like, there's been a couple. So, like, Manu Tuolangi's tackle on Chocobares was a belter. Yeah. Absolutely smoked him. But if he's 
an inch higher and hits him in the chin, he's gone as well. And he almost did that in one of the warm-up games as well. And you just thought, blimey, like if he's coming in at that speed and he's very slightly too high, he's gone. What if Chocobaras had, had just dipped, dipped slightly? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's so difficult for the players. And I think maybe the reason that the Curry one's under the spotlight that little bit more as well is because of the Santiago Carreras yellow card. And I think a lot of fans, I had people WhatsApping me saying, well, hang on, Tom Curry's tried to make a legal tackle where he's wrapped the man who has the ball whereas Santiago Carreras has jumped into someone who doesn't have the ball fairly recklessly and still that's I think where it starts to get hard for the fans to follow no but the thing is there's no obligation to even even it up in, in fact they got those two dead right I mean it was only yellow for the for the Argentinian but the problem is then the crowd are all baying expecting the Argentinian to go as well which is just nuts I agree it's with you but easy. I'm just saying I think that's where fans kind of struggle to to follow it's it a consistency yeah, thing isn't yeah. it yeah. I think it's, isn't it slightly to do with, with what looks like intent or malice or stupidity is, is jumping in on, on George Ford it looked far worse whereas Curry's looked an innocent error that's how it appears to the eye mm. yeah let's move on because positives for England I mean where do we want to start George Ford could be well, they've got a brain like, we haven't yeah. seen them with a brain for ages like, in the last four years you can count on one hand maybe half a hand the amount of times where you've seen them work out a way to win a game like that and it was just amazing like, as we were sort of joking like no one saw that coming like, red cards were in games in inverted commas but that made that game and it's a remarkable thing I think with England where in recent years they've sort of only been good when they've been punched in the face or punched themselves in the face and this was like the ultimate example of that, where second minute red card, having had such a terrible August, and then they just sort of come up with a plan, this drop goal plan, which they were saying afterwards was a preconceived thing, whether the Curry thing had happened or not. Um, and actually, some of it was a result of their attack being so terrible that George Ford was basically just like, well, I literally have no one to pass to, so I'm going to have to kick the drop goal here. But it was just like remarkable, wasn't it? Just watching him find a way. Yeah, it, 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 I was slightly hysterical. <laughs> like I couldn't believe what I was watching, and it was like it was a pinch me moment because it was it was so much fun. I, I, I thought it was wonderful, largely because it was such a surprise. It's beautiful execution. It, it's funny though because you know o- over the years the drop goal uh, you'd see probably two, three every game. It's fallen into total disuse, and actually, if you're not a very good attacking team. You haven't actually got to get within 20 yards of the line. You can just stand there and hoof it over the post. What was good about Ford was the beautiful execution. It was not, there were no gimmies. I mean, one was from nearly halfway. Just beautiful execution and probably wouldn't have done it on a wet day. But look, it's a way to win rugby matches. And his first drop goal, I felt, changed the whole balance of the game. But one of the um, ways that the narrative of the game, to, to me, seems to change really quickly is but by the time I back at my hotel eventually last night had gone from that was brilliant by England for, to find a way from to Argentina was so poor and Argentina were poor but kind of, as Jonesy said that the, the, the it was the drop goals that, that changed the psychology of the game the Argentinians heads dropped pretty quickly but after three drop goals in quick succession that you, you could see their shoulders slumping now England took the psychological advantage away from them from being a man up to, to you know we, we could be embarrassed here I thought Argentina were going to be great and like, when you looked at the team on paper you thought wow, if England are slightly emotionally off this or lacking in a bit of physicality or a little bit meek, which they were in the August, they're going to get absolutely blasted here by the likes of Kremer, who I googled before, who's 26. 
He looks like he's I've that been carved out of a rock. Yeah. How is he 26? Does he he's look older than Mac Five years Napoleon, younger than me. Because he's the oldest looking Yeah, player. yeah, yeah. But so like Crema, Matera, Juan Martin Gonzalez, who's going to Saracens, who's some one of the Argentinian journalists was saying he's going to be the next captain of the Pumas, that he's amazing. And you've got Lavanini and Alamano who just smashed people to pieces. But Courtney Laws was amazing. Like a couple of his turnovers in the 22 were epic. Maratoji found some energy, which we haven't seen for ages. The was, scrum was decent. Like so much of it came together it was almost all areas of the game that we're so used to being poor from England were just way better weren't they ignoring the red card discipline performance in terms of penalties conceded was the best in a long time the defence which has been shipping tries at an alarming rate looked really really solid there was an energy about them that had been criticised in the warm ups as you already said it's kind of where did that come from yeah mm-hmm. it's funny the defence one because I was looking at it this morning and so much of rugby and when you look at stats is just perception isn't it so like Everyone said Ireland-France in the Six Nations was one of the great games and there were 80 kicks and everyone hates kicking usually but that was one of the most kick-heavy games we've ever seen and again, perception. So this weekend, England missed 23 tackles and tackled at 79% success rate. Only They only missed four fewer tackles than they did against Fiji where they got absolutely blasted by everyone for missing 27. But it just sort of felt different. It's, it's funny that stats are rubbish sometimes, aren't they? Which does me out of a job, I think. I was going to say, you're the, you're the, the, the old stat cave over <laughs> yeah, there. Is, uh, you wouldn't Don't tell everyone, but that. sometimes stats lie completely. Uh, lads, uh, uh, listen, uh, Argentina, now we come on to them. I thought it was great for England and it was nice to be old warriors like Dan Cole and Marla were greeted by the crowd. There was some warmth back between the crowd and the team. But to my dying day, I will never be able to explain how pathetic Argentina were. I never. They're passionate rugby country, and uh, first of all, they had a couple of real bad players. The loose head prop is not fit for scrummaging at that level. They have some magnificent players. They had fourteen men. They had to keep the ball in play because when you when you just so that eventually you get to the place where the where the defender isn't, and uh, they showed no passion for it. They had no idea what they were doing. They got on the wrong side of the ref. The ref was ridiculous. You, you can't give eight penalties in a rugby union match to the same team in succession. It doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. So he lost it as well. Argentina were absolutely atrocious. And I think that will set them back in their rugby by years. I don't think I've ever seen a team have a man advantage for that much of a game and put their opponents under such little pressure. They went 3-0 up when Curry got the yellow card. It took them until the 79th minute before they then scored again when they scored the try and, and the game was done. You're right, Steve. It was an extraordinarily poor Pumas performance. But they'll probably make the course final still, won't they? Like they've got it's a bit like the England conversation. They've got to beat Chile, Samoa, Japan now to get through and then they'll play Aussie or Wales. Which if they get if they get some momentum back into their side, they fancy themselves against either of those. So it's, this is just a funny old thing about this World Cup draw that we keep talking about, the, the lopsided nature of it. The draw comes up again. Boys, we better leave it there because uh, we're pressed for time. Final thoughts on England then. Obviously, an improved performance, particularly under some adversity. Don't want to read into it too early. What's your kind of final takeaways from from that England just, performance and, and, this, and the context of this World Cup? It's just massive relief from everyone, I think. Because if, imagine if they'd lost and they go back up to Latuke out in the sticks and everyone's all angry and sort of mm. annoyed about everything and the fans go, see, oh, we spent so, many, so much money on this bloody team and they can't even beat Argentina, whatever. But just sort of all of that's been washed away. There's loads of problems with their game. They're not brilliant, 
but they won. That's sort of all we asked them to do. They won. So we've got to give them credit, I think. And now they've got the three easiest games in the pool. They should win all of them. And then they're in a quarterfinal, which they can definitely win. And you sort of go, well, it, the, the narrative has just completely flipped in one night. I came down from the game in Paris on the, on the Friday nights, which was so passionate and, and vivid and wonderful. And, and like m- most people, I'm sure, um, or most people who were, who were wearing England shirts, was expecting England to be a, a pale shadow of that, to, to not really be contributing. And, and for me, the thing that I, I take away from the England-Argentina game was that England found a personality again and they played with a, with a passion again and, and they, they might not win the World Cup they're not going to win the World Cup but, but if you can't come with those then you shouldn't really be at the World Cup but they did come with them and, uh, and that was part relief and part joyful I thought it was a really really good win for them I was really happy for them but the, 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 the elite teams in this tournament will still be sleeping easy in their beds Okay, so we've covered England and the Saturday action in Marseille. Now it's time to cover the Sunday action in Marseille, Scotland against South Africa. Mark Palmer from the Times and Sunday Times in Scotland is with me in the bowels of the stadium. You've just done your post-match stuff, Mark, speaking to the players in the mixed zone, hearing from Gregor Townsend. What's the the mood of this Scotland side after what was, I suppose, a pretty deflating defeat to the Springboks? I think that's probably the right word. There's definite disappointment there, which probably speaks to the um, the, the sort of expectation that this group have of themselves now. I think they realised they didn't manage to impose their own attacking game in anything like the, the way that they would have wanted. A lot of that has to do with you know the Springboks, just that exceptional uh, blitz defence and the, the kind of clawing pressure it puts on you. But, you know, there was a lot of lot of mistakes, particularly in that first half, not looking after the ball properly and you end up just kind of feeding that Springbok beast. Uh, and, you know, again, they're so clinical two chances they have in the first what was it five minutes of the second half and, and the game is gone we always knew this pool was going to be tough and maybe we can come on to that is it particularly deflating in that coming into the tournament it felt like Scotland had almost had as good a preparation as they could do they'd had some tough fixtures they'd won against France they'd pushed France fairly well away from home as well where do they go from here I suppose is the next thing after a game we knew would be really difficult well the phrase that is getting uttered there in the mix zone is three cup finals it was um, four cup finals before today but realistically now they they are in that territory that you know they have a two-week gap and then they play Tonga which you know shouldn't present too much of a challenge but equally there is absolutely no margin for error there now they've got to go and smash Tonga they've got to smash Romania because it could come down to points difference as well and then they're going to have to knock off Ireland, the number one ranked team in the world in the last game so if we say it quickly it sounds easy <laughs> but you know the, this, the, after losing that first game there really is no margin for error at all now Is there any part of the game today in fact we were just speaking before we hit record and I said to you it felt to me like a quarter final yeah in that it, it wasn't the most entertaining game, but it felt high stakes because of the pool that it's in. Would you kind of agree with that? What was your reading on the, the style of match? We it, saw? it kind of felt, you know, that it was a much better occasion than match. I mean, it was a, as you've been up there yourselves, it's a fantastic arena, a great atmosphere by both, created by both sets of fans who are well represented. But just yeah, it, Scotland just couldn't break out into that kind of you know the attacking game that this team has been known for, and you know that ended up it ended up becoming a match that suited South Africa pretty well. It came down to those. Physical contests, lots of breakdowns, lots of scrums, lots of lineouts, and you know it, 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 it didn't evolve in the way that Scotland would have wished. It's always difficult getting the balance when it's something like that, where you Scotland haven't been able to attack in the way they wanted, and as you've mentioned already, a part of that is because the Springboks' defence, as we know was brilliant yeah. and is often brilliant what else would you or have they perhaps in that mix zone 
put that down to? Was it more about what the Springboks did or will they be more disappointed in what they didn't do? I think there's there's definitely a bit of both. I think they're, they're, they're kind of obviously referencing what the, the limitations that that blitz defence puts on you, but you know that's not a surprise. They knew that was coming. They felt they had a plan to combat that. You know, Finn Russell, after taking that early, done in the ribs didn't really impose himself as, as we know he can it's not to say he had a bad game but you know they certainly wasn't swinging open that box of tricks in, in the manner that we all know he's, he's well capable of and you know the, the one time you know the chances are going to be few and far between the one time they did break through there with Darcy Graham who's normally makes exceptional decisions in the 22 has to hand Van der Merver outside him and doesn't give him the ball he, after having made a fantastic kind of um, dummy in the first place he, he's got to make the pass uh, and I think things you know those are big big moments and if you don't grasp them you're not going to win a game of this magnitude and you were saying to me before as well TMO intervention or lack of a source of frustration for them as well people will, will have seen this this was the head-on-head clash in early on in the game yeah, which 57 seconds at. and you know again it's not one that we can any of us I think claim to have really picked on up at the time it came to light at half time and I think everybody will have seen it by now and there is clear head-on-head contact between Jesse Creole and Jack Dempsey and if you know if Tom Curry is the bar then you would think that those meet the same conditions. It, it wasn't looked at by anybody, it would appear, um, which seems it seems odd. And again, you know, what's been lamented through there in the, the press conference in Mick Zone is uh, just the perceived lack of consistency there. And it's, not, it's an impossible thing to achieve in rugby, but, you know, often we don't help ourselves when there's these kind of queer disparities between what looked to the naked eye like two very similar incidents. It's a shame we're at that, aren't we, after, the, after the opening week of the World Cup? You always yeah. felt like officiating would be a big talking point at some point, but to have it already, it's something that me, Slotty, Will and, and Steve spoken about already on the podcast after this game, the, the Scotland game. I was out there when the fans were leaving and all the Scotland fans we spoke to were saying exactly yeah. that. I think all fans are saying at the moment because if we look at it now, we've had the Tom Curry one, which is a red card. We've had one in the Japan game, which was a yellow but not upgraded to red. And then we had one in this game, which was looked at and decided didn't Nothing need any, any yeah. punishment at all. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I wrote a column about it last week. We're all here to watch the best players in the world do their thing. That's what we want to be talking about. That's what, you know. And unfortunately, though, when, you know, when something that looks as odd as that happens, then, you know, we all have to take cognizance of it and, and analyse it. And, you know, none of us take any great pleasure in debating it, particularly the way the call went, I don't think. So, but, you know, that's as long as these inconsistencies are evident, then we will keep talking about them. Let's start casting our minds forward then for Scotland now in this pool, which, as we've said already, we always knew was going to be such a challenge to get out of. How do you assess their chances now particularly after from what you've seen tonight is it ultimately you think most likely going to end in an exit at the pool stage it kind of feels like that and you know they're going to have to do something which this team hasn't managed since 2017 which is to be Ireland I think they've won the last eight head-to-heads they have a, a style of rugby which has proved to be kryptonite to, to ours you know that, that direct style and much like we saw the Springboks today I think if there's anything they can take from this game is the ability to front up to that I thought Scotland you know they weren't embarrassed in the physical stakes certainly so um, I think that's something that they can cling on to and you know it will be a similar level of or, or, or similar type rather than level of challenge that will come from Tonga that those are big men who come hard on street as well so I think they have this fortnight now to try to come up with a plan for that game it has to be a big win Romania has to be a big win and then you take your chances with Ireland don't you and actually I thought set piece certainly in the first half mm. of Scotland was actually a bit of a positive I know the scrum in the second half kind of went the other way towards the Springboks but I personally I thought line out and scrum in, in the first half was maybe something for them to kind of look at and say if we can get that sort of dominance then maybe against a side that doesn't have the kind of defence that the Springboks do yeah, yeah. then we might be able to get more out of our attacking game agree 
played and I think you know certainly scrum wise yeah first half went well line out which has been a bit bobbly at times a couple of overthrown ones there as well it just, it they just, went to the back a lot though yeah, didn't they which yeah, seemed to be a tactic yeah it did and didn't necessarily come off when, and when they went a bit more conservative it seemed to tighten up so um, as you say if you can get those foundation blocks in place you'd like to think they'd have more than enough structure and then flair on top of that to, to see off Tonga but um, plenty of time to reflect <laughs> <laughs> thanks for your time Mark where's next for you, Are you back to Nice back to Nice, so back to nice. Scotland are based there pretty much for the duration they're just kind of going in and out of the match venues so yeah we, we will be there and you will be there throughout the World Cup for Scotland which I hope is longer than the pool stages after tonight though not Indeed. too sure <laughs> thanks for your time Mark goodbye Mother's Day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones Blue Nile has something she'll adore Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, delighted now to be joined by Elgin Oldman. You'll be able to hear I probably sound slightly different to the rest of the podcast. We're having to do this over Zoom. I've obviously been in Marseille over the weekend. Elgin has been following Wales, so is elsewhere around France. Elgin, let's get straight into it. Wales' victory over Fiji, the final game of the opening round on Sunday night. Game of the weekend, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was probably the moment where the World Cup came alive because it was a a real ding-dong of a fixture. It ended up Wales winning 32-26, but Semi Randra had that bouncing ball in front of him in the final play of the game when Fiji looked like they were unstoppable at that stage. They'd already scored two tries in the last seven minutes and they had just marched up upfield with so much ease late on. And you'd probably think when you look back at the tape now that they probably shouldn't have gone for a missed pass. They had four men, quite a disjointed Wales line out wide. The defensive line out wide, but uh, the ball bounced in front of Randrandra and he just couldn't hold on when it looked like he might be able to squeeze in at the corner about five, ten metre run in. Then, of course, there would have been a very difficult conversion to win, to win the match. But in that instant, it felt like Wales had sort of got away. But at the same time, you've got to say for the first 65 minutes where they chucked the ball around from just about everywhere, they, they defended manfully. They They made 253 tackles in the game which is a Rugby World Cup record, according to Opta. Fiji made 70 in comparison, so 253 to 70 sort of tells the story of the defensive effort Wales had to put in. Perhaps also tells the story of some tactics they may have got wrong, but you know, for a neutral watching that, it was just an absolutely brilliant occasion with a brilliant ending, not quite so brilliant for Fiji fans, but just... An ending where you didn't know who was going to win right until the very end. Both teams, great ebb and flow, great attack, great good defence as well. So, yeah, just it was, it was an outstanding evening in Bordeaux. Yeah, I expected Wales to have a game plan that would be able to, to beat Fiji. I didn't quite expect it to be the game plan that we probably ended up seeing, though. What did you make of the, the way they approached the game? It was certainly very interesting. There were times when they were quite frantically passing the ball around in their 22, which is refreshing to see sometimes, but then when people do say, oh, we want to see more chucking the ball about at the same time when you're watching that with a sort of through a whale's prism, you're thinking, like, what are you doing? And and you saw that through Dan Bigger at the end of the first half. They, there was a 
There was there was a, a knock on advantage, but Wales just attacked on their own try line, even though the t- uh, the clock was up. And Nick Tompkins and George North tried to offload to each other. There was a knock on, so the half ended there. But Dan Bigger wasn't happy about it, and I think he could be heard on the uh, ref mic back on ITV, leading to an apology, uh, telling George exactly what he thought about the decision not to kick it off the field, seeing as the clock was up and it was eighteen fourteen. But uh, like I say, it meant that it was entertaining to watch because. You're perhaps not accustomed to seeing Wales chucking it about in their own 22. Uh, and Jonathan Humphreys, the forwards coach, has just spoken to the, the Travelling Wales press pack. And he did suggest, yes, we want our team to play heads up rugby, but we maybe weren't expecting them to uh, chuck it about quite so much in their own in their own 22. Now, Wales are well set to probably from here on in reach, reach a quarterfinal. Mm. They're a team that traditionally don't start well and they've started with an epic where they've had to work incredibly hard and they've beaten Fiji. So in that regard, you know, many positives for Wales. Yeah, we'll get on to what it means for Pool B in just a moment because that's set up interestingly, I suppose, heading into to next weekend. Just quickly, what was the feeling when you were in the mix zone after the game, speaking to the Wales camp and speaking to other people in the media area? I was watching what I could of the game. It was kind of on after Scotland, South Africa, as I was busy doing other bits and bobs. But I've seen a lot of discussion about the officiating, which is something, unfortunately, that seems to be coming up quite a lot in the, the opening round of the tournament. Were Wales fortunate with the interpretation there or is this being made more of than than was really the case? I think the questions around the officiating stem mainly around the fact that Wales conceded 17 penalties, which is a very high amount for an international fixture. And yet they only had one yellow card. Corey Domachowski was yellow carded for persistent team infringements shortly before the 70th minute. If you look back, you could possibly say that I think there was an instance where Liam Williams was was penalised for going... Uh, maybe off his feet to the ruck later on. You could maybe say that that should have been a yellow card. So I think that's probably where the questions lie around, whether one yellow is a significant punishment for 17 penalties. Mm-hmm. Fiji gave away only nine penalties and had a yellow card as well themselves. Obviously, they're slightly different situations because Fiji's yellow card was because Lakima Tangi Tangivalu had uh, collapsed a Wales mall that was going unstoppably towards the, the Fiji line. So... In a sense, you could argue that that perhaps should have been a penalty try if that's the type of uh, you know punitive element you like to your officiating. As it was, Wales scored from the next mall anyway, so that didn't make much of a difference. But but that's what it mainly stemmed down to. And when Warren Gatland was asked about it afterwards, he, he wasn't overly drawn about it. He want, he sort of said, you know, if you want to regard us as being lucky, then by all means do because you know these things always come back around. We've seen plenty of instances in the past where Wales have been down to thirteen men late on in games and. And suffered because of it. Simon Riley, Fiji head coach, uh, was very diplomatic about the refereeing as well. Yeah, and a great result for Wales, as you've already said, came into the tournament, I think, in a similar position to England and that neither playing particularly well and so important to get their campaign up and running against a, a really good Fiji team as well. So it's almost... I know they might have liked a, a more comprehensive victory, but a perfect start for Wales. In terms of Fiji, though, everyone's favourite second team, they are kind of billed as amongst the so-called Tier 2 teams, the one that has the best chance of breaking through and upsetting some of the more established nations. Well, their match this weekend against Australia is the pick of the matches across all the pools, I think, because Fiji could, if they lose that game, or almost certainly if they lose that game, will be looking at an, an early exit. So, I mean, I don't know, that's, that's set up really interestingly. Yeah, absolutely. I was just chatting to Matthew Southcombe, who's out here with ITV Wales, and he was saying that he was interviewing one of the one of the Fijian boys after the game, and 
sort of he was laying down a mark, basically saying everything you've just seen, we're throwing it back against you know Australia this weekend. So they now categorically have a do or die game. You know, if they lose to Australia, then they are over two straight away, and then it suddenly looks like it'll be now impossible to to reach the knockouts unless something bizarre happens and, and Wales lose to Georgia, which they have done in the in the past year and a half. So. But what we do know is from what we've seen, all of those those threats that everyone regards Fiji as having, they were all on view on, on Sunday night. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they're faring against Australia. It should be another another great game. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's quite similar to what we what we saw on Sunday night. Just finally then, Elgin, Australia, obviously the, the other kind of big hitter in this pool, if you like. What did you make of their opening weekend win over Georgia? Well, it was... What I found most interesting was that it was a match where while you were watching it, you thought this Australia pack is completely on top and Georgia have the best back on the field, which is not normally the way you'd think you'd think of it when Australia playing Georgia. Georgia had David Niniashvili, the Leon fullback, who is just such an excellent slippery runner and, you know, real sense of enterprise when he has ball in hand. That that did come back to bite him in one instance. He threw one of the best interception passes I've ever seen where he f- threw a massive offload back to a retreating Taniela Tupu who couldn't realise what, couldn't believe what had happened and suddenly he just turned around and thought, oh, good, I'm in open space here and I've got the ball out of nowhere. And then he sent Ben Donaldson over for a try, which, you know, really snuffed some of Georgia's momentum when they were trying to make a, a comeback. But, you know, 35-15, so a 20-point win for Australia. Not, not you know, not a huge win over George, but I think people perhaps thought it was going to be a bit closer than that because you know Australia have lost five games in a row under Eddie Jones. That's their their first win. They've got a win now. Like I say, the pack with with Tupo a tighter prop, Will Skelton behind him, who collapsed to George and Maul at one stage in the second half just by dint of being the biggest man on a rugby field. He just sort of, the weight of gravity just took them all down uh, when he latched onto the ball carrier in that sort of swimming fashion that we see locks do. And then Angus Bell as well on the other side of the, the front row. It means that Australia have two excellent props. They've got a huge man behind them in the second row. And you've got this situation now where Australia's scrum and play in the tight is perhaps where their, their strength lies. And that'll be something that Wales will have to watch out for. And obviously it'll be something that Fiji have to watch out for. But it means that it's now set up for Fiji to go and chase the game. And, you know, two teams that should hopefully play some good rugby. And, uh, yeah, it should be a, a great clash on Sunday. Well, we'll see you in Nice this weekend, Elgin. Wales taking on Portugal. Looking forward to it. Appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Paul C, it's set up so nicely, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's... Uh... You know, it'll be good for Wales to have Portugal up next because obviously that is on paper the easiest game for them with Portugal being the, the lowest ranked side in the pool. And it should mean that with only a six-day turnaround, you know, there's not quite a hu- as huge amount riding on it in the sense of getting back up for it emotionally and dealing with the tired bodies from the Fiji game. So the scheduling in that way around should should work well for Wales that, you know, everyone's expecting that it shouldn't be too, should be their easiest game of the four, no disrespect to Portugal, but just based purely off world rankings and this being only Portugal's second World Cup. And then after that, you've got eight days to get back up again for the Australia match. So, yeah, Wales are now 
in one of the two driving seats for the knockouts, uh, which is you know the most they could ask for after the first match. Well, appreciate your time, Elgin. All eyes for Wales, at least, as we say, will be on that Portugal game in Nice this coming weekend. Up next on The Ruck, we'll finish this week's episode by heading back to Slotty Will and Steve Jones poolside and get their god or goddess of the week. All right, round off the pod, god or goddess of the week. Anyone want to kick us off here? I'll go with someone who I've never, ever considered for this award ever again and maybe never will do in the future, Dan Cole. I've been very critical of him. Uh, I think he's, I thought his career should have ended in almost humiliation in the last World Cup. He's battled on, he's, he's stayed fit, uh, and last night in quite a scrum battle and heavy weather, I thought he did really well. I'm going to beat Slotty to St George Ford, if that's allowed. And and talking of sort of narrative and stuff, we've got another week of Owen Farrell's ban, but I wonder what quite happens now with that. They probably just go 10, 12, 13, don't they? Move Manu out one. But George Ford, like he's... It's amazing to think that Eddie Jones dropped him. He's just such a class player, and he's still 30. He's a, he's a hell of a player, and he's selfishly, he's a really interesting and nice bloke to speak to afterwards and gives you a lot of detail and stuff like that, and I'm just happy for him because he had a really good game. I'll quickly try and think of another one then, Slotty. We, well, I, I have got one, but, but just on George, I, I've been sort of pondering this in, in my head. If Farrell had been fit and he'd been playing 10, do, you, do we think that would have happened yesterday? Because what, Massively what, what fascinating. Happened, what happened in that game was you saw a smart player with ice in his veins thinking his way and executing his way through the game. And, and that's what Owen isn't. Owen, is, is he would be flipping furious, wouldn't he? And he would try and go out and smash them, whereas George doesn't do that. Um, but anyway, that's not my, my my god of the week is the um, whoever's in charge of Uber in Marseille because they've upped the rate so far that that he's retired already and and, and it has a, a Monsieur Le Uber. Yeah, he, he's, he's got a, a magnificent villa somewhere. The house made of gold somewhere. What a smart guy. <laughs> well, just on that, just on that point, I've got a friend that owns a flat in Marseille and usually would Airbnb it for around 130 euros a night, thousand euros a night, thousand over this weekend. Yeah, which kind of gives you an indication of just the, the amount of people flocking Absolute racket, to, a lot of them. to Marseille. <laughs> uh, I'll round us off. Uh, I would have gone George Ford as well. I should also say as well, I know in our preview pod that we said that we would be kind of stitching the pod together over the World Cup because people being here, there and everywhere. So we are recording this as on Sunday, so before the Wales game, the Scotland game. So people could be listening to this and thinking, hang on a minute, how on earth are they not picked anyone from from those games. I'm going to go with Gregory Aldrit, though, I thought, to give it to a Frenchman. Oh, nice. He uh, yeah, very good. put a, a, a good foot forward once more for why, when he's on form, he's the best number eight in the world. So just to change it up a little bit, I'll go for him. Boys, thanks very much. This has been the Ruck from the Times and the Sunday Times. A reminder as well to make sure you get uh, the latest episode of Will's How to Win the World Cup series. We've had two episodes out so far with Sean Fitzpatrick and John Eels. And coming up this Thursday... Joel Stransky. Joel Stransky. And there's a really fun story in there about um, Matt Damon, Clint Eastwood and Nelson Mandela and Morgan Freeman. And so tune in for that, I'd say. So that'll be in your podcast feed on Thursday. We'll be back next Monday with another edition of The Ruck as we look back on all of the round two action at the Rugby World Cup. But from sunny Marseille, we'll see you next week. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.